0: This is Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 128 with guest Susan Anderson.
1: This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's
0: face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who served it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome everybody to another episode of the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. As always, I have one quick announcement and then I'm going to go into kind of like a caveat, I guess, of the intro and then we're going to get into the episode that I'm so excited for you to hear. But my quick announcement is that there are still only three spots left at that special discount just for podcast listeners for my signature masterclass your kick-ass courage project, the masterclass that starts in January, right in the new year to kick off your new year. Amazing. It's an eight week online course. That is my signature program. It's very similar to the private work that I do with women. We run the gamut of topics in that class. And just for podcast listeners, this hasn't even gone out to like my main group of people. No emails have been sent out or anything announcing that this class is opening for registration. It is just for y'all. So there is a special $200 discount for podcast listeners and an extended payment plan. So again, we don't start until January, but there is some stuff for you to get started on if you sign up. So if you go to kickassmasterclass.com forward slash podcast, you have to go to the forward slash podcast kickassmasterclass.com say that fast, forward slash podcast, because if you don't, you don't get the discount. So it's a secret page just for y'all. There were 10 spots open when I opened this and there are three spots left. So if you know you want in, go over there and snatch one up. The link, of course, is in the show notes for this episode. So again, before I get into the episode, I'm going to talk about something really uncomfortable because that's what I love to do over here on the podcast, right? But I haven't talked about the election at all, and I don't know if somebody's like, is Andrea going to talk about the election at all, or maybe you've been like happy I haven't talked about it. I don't know. But I've been sitting with it and really thinking hard about how to address it. And I've actually seen some people on Facebook, other coaches and stuff, saying like, like shunning other coaches for not talking about it yet. And I was like, girl, give me a minute. Like, <laughs> I'm actually. I knew I was going to say something. I just didn't know how to address it and i've been watching other people that have audiences like mine talk about this and wondering what is right for me here and of course i want to do it right i want to both serve you and i want to serve the greater good and i want to serve the big picture but i don't know if i can do all of those things and if there is a right or wrong way to do this and of course of course i don't want to piss people off of course i don't want to alienate any of you but at the same time I need to honor my own values as a human and as a leader. And I do, you know, I thought about it for a long time and I did have the option of being totally and completely bipartisan and being really neutral and talking about both sides and making it peaceful and not rocking the boat. But that would not only be a cop-out, I think, for me, but totally impossible to do. Because this election is complicated, or I should say it was very, very complicated. And I can't talk about it without upsetting someone out there, but I can't not talk about it. And again, I thought long and hard about what to say and what my point is. And it comes back to the foundation of what I do. And that is that I teach through my lived experiences. For instance, I talk about what it was like being a love addict, just in case someone out there has similar behaviors so they can look into getting The right kind of help for them. And I talk about my struggle with alcohol. So, same thing. If people relate to my story, they can get help. And I know that this is different and this is volatile territory, you know, to be really frank about it. But if you've been with me this long, I hope that you'll hear me out. And I posted something similar to what I'm about to say on my personal Facebook page. I think it was just a few days after the election, and it started a really great conversation. People were really respectful. They asked me honest questions about what I said, and I answered them, and that's what I've kind of created in my mind, like what I'm going to talk about here for just a couple of minutes. And my intention is not to make anyone wrong. It's not even to change anyone's mind at all. It's not to defend my choices. It's simply to tell you my experience around this topic in hopes that it might make people understand each other a little bit better because screaming at each other and calling each other names and shunning people doesn't help, which I know is happening on both sides. So I voted for Hillary Clinton. I was on the team that was devastated that she lost. I was shocked that she lost only because it wasn't expected, but I wasn't surprised that she lost. And I wasn't surprised because I used to be a Republican and had a very conservative state of mind. So therefore, I understand why so many people voted for Donald Trump. In elections past, I voted for George W. Bush, and then I voted for John McCain, Way back after 9-11, I was pro-war and even found myself yelling at war protesters one day that were outside protesting the war. Yep, I was that girl. I was a member of the Young Republicans Club in my college. And in other words, I was a proud conservative up until about five or six years ago. I'm not going to go into too much of the specifics of why I changed my mind. And now I'm a registered Democrat, but I'll tell you something important about that in a minute, but I think I have a unique perspective given my history. And I'm fairly certain if this election had been about 10 years ago, I would have voted for Trump myself. And when I tell Democrats this, especially people that know me now, they ask how, how could you Andrea Owen have excused his racism, sexism, misogyny, xenophobia, and homophobia. And before I tell you how I could have and would have excused it, I need to be really clear. I am not and cannot speak for all white female Republicans. I don't mean to make sweeping generalizations, but I know that 53% of us of white females voted for Trump. But what I'm about to tell you may not be the same reasons all those women voted for him or men for that matter. I can only tell you how I, as a white woman, giving my beliefs at that time would have supported him. I'll tell you the first things that I would have been conscious of. So these are the things like that I knew. And then later I'll tell you the things that I was not aware of. That was actually my reasoning that I didn't realize until years later. So the things that I would have argued and the things that I would have stood behind really are the 2006 version of me would have supported Trump by arguing to keep jobs in America, that we were in trouble as a great nation and we needed repair. And that included getting corrupt politicians out, keeping terrorists out, keeping America safe, keeping our tax dollars here and not helping people who weren't born here. You know, when I say all this, I'm like, that's the definition of fear and scarcity right there. I would have argued that we needed help to help veterans more and that Donald Trump promised us that. I would have gotten behind him wanting to shake up Washington and I would have gotten behind the tax cut for families like mine. These were all the things the 2006 version of me would have said I stood for because I was really, truly and honestly blind to everything else. And again, to clarify, I do not speak for all Trump voters presently. I only can share with you who who I was and how things have changed for me personally, because I have found that Democrats are just looking around and going like, how, how could you, how could this have happened? And so that's kind of what I'm explaining for me, like how I would have argued it. And again, these are things that I can tell you about what was really going on, but I didn't realize this until years later, you know, what was really happening. And I had taken a good hard look at my life and what was really happening around me. So I spent a lot of years, probably like the last handful of years, really opening my ears and my mind and listening and learning instead of just accepting the beliefs and opinions of the people around me, no one changed my mind. No one said, you know, we think you should come over and vote differently and here's why. And, you know, it was nobody's Facebook post. It was no no one article. It was no argument online that I got in to where I changed my mind. It was just really listening and learning and really opening my eyes. So again, the 2006 version of me, would have felt sad for all of the people and families that are currently scared. You know, when people would have said, like, what about all the people of color and the Muslims? Like, I would have felt bad for them, for LGBT people. But I lived in a bubble. I lived in a bubble where those people didn't really touch my life. So while I felt bad for them, it was easier for me to shut the curtains and focus only on the people around me who were white, straight, middle-class. I wanted things the way they were and what I was used to, what felt safe to me, what felt beneficial to me and to the people I cared about. All the problems for those other people, they just weren't my problems. And it pains me to say that. I am ashamed and embarrassed to admit it, but that's the truth. Those people's problems were over there, and I was over here in my bubble, and it didn't really affect me at all. I hate to say it, but that's really, underneath it all, would have been probably the main reason that I could have supported Donald Trump. And again, I'm not saying that that's it for a lot of people, but I suspect that it is. The 2006 version of me had no idea, not one iota how bad racism was. I had no idea it was so hard for many gay or transgender people to just try to walk around in this world and be themselves. I had, and still have, so much privilege, but was completely blind to it. I knew I wasn't a bad person, so what power did I possibly have to help these types of issues and those types of people? I didn't think it was up to me. I felt like It was enough for me not to hate them. I wasn't in a hate group. I was fine with them. So I felt like that was enough. But now in 2016, I know it's up to me. I'll say this again. What I did was spend a lot of time opening my ears and my mind and listening and learning instead of just accepting the beliefs and opinions of the people around me. Because today, when things happen to me as a white woman, for instance, remember that story I told you a couple of weeks ago? It was in episode 126 when I told you about that super pissed off guy that followed me in his truck and I had to call 911 when I was with my kids. If I were a black woman with my black children, do you think I would have felt safe calling the police as some crazy guy, some redneck, like following me around with like massive road rage? No, I probably would not have felt safe calling the police. Or even as a white woman, if my husband was black and I would have been with him in the car, would we have felt safe calling the police if that same incident had happened? We probably wouldn't. But it's things like that that I don't even think about because I'm white. And I can't not say anything about that with what we are facing as a nation right now. I know that no matter which way you voted, your reasons were noble to you. Everyone thinks they're the good guy, right? My hope is that before you shun the people in your life for who they voted for, remember, it's really hard to change someone's political views. Nobody did it for me. I had to have my own awakening and decide for myself. I tell you all in this community to stand up for what you believe in. Even if it's unpopular, I never said stand up for what you believe in, even if it's unpopular, but only if it's the same thing as what I believe in, you may have totally different views than I do. And that's fine. It really is. And if I'm losing you as a listener by what I just said, I'm okay with that too. But again, I couldn't not say anything. And that's all I've got to say about that. All right. All right. So let's totally change gears and get into the interview with Susan Anderson. Susan seriously blew my mind with her knowledge about this topic that you're about to listen to. And I know you'll love what you're about to hear. But before we jump in, here's a little bit about her. Susan Anderson is the author of the Abandonment Recovery Workbook, as well as Taming Your Outer Child and the Journey from Abandonment to To healing. The founder of the Outer Child and Abandonment Recovery Movements, she has devoted the last 30 years of clinical experience and research to helping people resolve abandonment and overcome self sabotage. So, without further ado, here is Susan. Hi there, Susan. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I really don't know why we would have someone on the podcast who wrote the Abandonment Recovery Workbook, since I know none of my people have abandonment issues, nor do I, but I thought I would just have you (laughs) on for fun. (laughs) Because you seem like a nice person, I'm totally joking. (laughs) We all have abandonment issues, and I have to tell a funny story real quick before we get started. So, you know, I get propositioned from PR people to have their people that are writing books on my show. And so I got like a catalog of all these different books from, I forget, is it maybe it was New Harbinger or whoever your publisher is, New World Library. And yeah. you were kind of down towards the bottom, your book, you know, the Abandonment Recovery Workbook. And I was like, her, this lady, Susan Anderson, I want her on my <laughs> podcast. And the PR lady was like, well, her book does. I mean, this was like in the beginning of 2016. She's like, the book doesn't yeah. come out until <laughs> late 2016. <2016." laughs> I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) Just (laughs) tell her I want her on my show. So it's been a long time. I've been waiting with bated breath over here to have you on. I'm I'm very excited to to have you on and talk about this topic. (laughs) Great. Ernan is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC.
1: Feel like you're the martyr in your family?
0: So my very first question is, why did you write this book? Well,
2: I was already a psychotherapist specializing in abandonment issues. You know, I looked through the lens of abandonment at people's childhood issues and how it affects them, and I was very sensitive to my psychiatric patients I worked with over many years, to the fact that once they were in a hospital locked up, they had tremendous abandonment issues, and I worked with them around that issue. And it was very effective because it made a very strong connection right away to work directly with the primal wound. So then I had my own abandonment experience. The love of my life of 18 years, my marital partner, just up and left me for another woman. Mm. And it was so devastating that... I realized that there was nothing in the literature that spoke to that level of pain. And in fact, all the heartbreak sort of was trivialized. You know, there were lots of self-help books on heartbreak. The literature, the psychological literature, really did not get into what makes so-called heartbreak so actually break your heart. What is there about it and why? The things that happened in childhood managed to linger and revisit us. So it got me on a journey of a lot of research into other fields, other scientific areas, etc. And then all of that with new insight that could help people It made me want to write a book.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. I cannot wait to ask you questions. I'm so excited (laughs) because we have, I didn't know this about you, but we have a similar story. So, my ex husband, I was in a relationship with him for 13 and a half years. He left me for another woman and we got divorced. And then just five weeks ago, my father died. So, that kind of brings me to my first question to ask you is how does a devastating breakup compare to grieving the death of a loved one? And what does that all have to do with abandonment?
2: Yes. Well, Grieving a death, you go through a grief process, and there are five stages of that that Kubler-Ross and others have outlined, and grieving and abandonment overlaps with that whole grief process because loss is loss. But when you're grieving the abandonment part of the loss, in other words, the unresolved issues that you may have had with your father or like when you went through your divorce, being left for another woman, when the abandonment grief is more about the loss of self-esteem, the incredible impact it has on sense of self. So when you're going through a grief over death, you're going through a pretty clean Mm -hmm. loss. It isn't complicated except that Most of us do have residual, you know, unresolved feelings with a person who dies, especially if it's a parent. And then, you know, all of that stuff kind of gets in there and mucks up the grief. It either makes us more numb than we were expecting and we can't feel anything, Mm -hmm. even the grief itself can be hard to feel, or it makes us more reactive during that time. We're more vulnerable because all of those old issues coming into the new wound.
0: That's interesting. Okay, and I I like that you said that the death of of a loved one is clean. Yes, I can see that happening because I remember saying like when my husband left me and I was going through that devastating breakup, I remember thinking, I want to write a book and I want the title of it to be, it would have been easier if you died.
2: Yes, that's (laughs) that's that's the truth because, you know, one of my workshop members described it this way. She had been through both a death of a loved one and the abandonment, you know, the rejection and abandonment of a loved one. And she said, right in front of the group, she said, you know, when you lose somebody to death, it's like you've been cut from your Siamese twin, but with a sterilized scalpel. So it hurts, and it's tremendously life-changing and earth-shattering. But when you've gone through abandonment, it isn't a clean wound. It's more like shrapnel exploding inside, because it does sort of internal damage.
0: That's a very dramatic and accurate yes. (laughs) You also mentioned you briefly mentioned Kubler Ross, and we will link to her in the show notes along with everything else that we're going to talk about here. Kubler Ross is sort of, I don't know, she's sort of the godmother of studying grief and death and things like that, wouldn't you say? Yes. Oh, yes. She's amazing. Okay, so tell us about the five stages of abandonment that you mentioned, or you call you like to call it swirl. Yes,
2: because that's what it's like. You swirl through the stages. So the first one is shattering. It stands for shattering, withdrawal, internalizing, rage, and lifting. And shattering is when you first realize that the source of security, the thing that's giving you comfort that you rely on, is threatened. And then withdrawal is when if that threat means it's really over, you're yearning for that person. You're yearning for that person's connection, for what they were giving you, for what for the love that they were giving you. You're yearning for that person. And it's just like heroin withdrawal. You have flu-like symptoms. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You have the heebie-jeebies. You're you're strung out. But instead of craving a drug, you're craving the person. Mm -hmm. And it does involve the body's opiate system, its own endogenous opiates, when you're in withdrawal from a love relationship. And then the next phase, internalizing, is when... You start to beat yourself up for the person rejecting you. You take the rage about being rejected, and ooh, there's a lot of rage about that, and you turn it against yourself. And you say things to yourself like, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm Mm -hmm. not successful enough, I don't have a good enough personality. I don't have enough appeal as a person. I don't have a strong enough sense of self to hold on to the person, whatever it is. You know, all of your little self-doubts that were only, you know, sort of under the surface are now hitting you very hard because you're beating yourself up. And this causes a major depression, which is really, really tough to get through, and that's during the internalizing phase. And then the fourth stage is rage, where you're tired of taking all the blame, so now there's sort of a self that says, hey, wait a minute, it's not all my fault, and we stand up to fight back, only we're too timid very often to take all of the rage out on the abandoner because we may be groveling for more love and approval from that person. So under the influence of alcohol, we may yell and scream at that person, but sober we might you know be kinder and try to communicate because we want closure so we take it out on our friends because they say stupid things like just let go move forward you know and those things are so annoying because they show a lack of empathy for what we're going through and then during lifting it sounds great because life is pulling you back in you know, you're noticing the flowers blooming or you feel the beautiful, you know, change of wind in the atmosphere, and you notice yourself getting distracted from the grief. And yet, if you leave the grief behind altogether, you can get numb around the area of the wound. And what that does is, after you emerge from the abandonment grief, it can, you swirl within these phases, within a day, within a week, within months, within a year, And as you come out of the abandonment grief, and you leave the feelings behind, and you have numbness, it means that you may chase after unavailable partners, because Mm you now need to feel something. And the only thing you've learned how to feel is insecurity, being on the precipice Mm -hmm. of abandonment, so you no longer feel attracted to people who are available, because you don't have those feelings that are working anymore, because you've sort of risen above those feelings and left them sort of under the scar. So abandonment recovery is all about taking all of the feelings and working with them, using them to create a very profound new relationship with yourself. And that way you're still intact and the numbing, it's the opposite of numbing. You're
0: feeling, you're
2: more conscious, and you're more likely to appreciate mutual love than even before.
0: You just described exactly what I went through when I went through my divorce down to (laughs) choosing. Well, that's why I think we often hear, you know, like, why do I keep choosing the same guys over and over again? And so what you just described is in the lifting stage, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because I did the exact same thing. And I'm sure some of you are clamoring right now, like, where do I get this book? In the show notes, everybody, yourkickasslife.com forward slash 128 are going to be links directly to get the Abandonment Recovery Workbook, since I know some of you are like, oh my God, she's talking about me. So what happens if you find yourself stuck in one of the swirl stages?
2: Well, you tend to get stuck in the stage that you struggled with the most when you were a kid because, you know, we swirl through childhood too because childhood is full of little knocks and disappointments and feelings of inadequacy or, you know, disappointment and discombobulation within the family and all of that. So we swirl through those losses too because children see all loss and discombobulation, disconnection. They see it all as abandonment because it all makes them feel diminished. Adults are a little more discriminating. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. take all disappointment as abandonment, but children do. Whatever stage we struggled with the most as a child is the one we struggle with the most going through it as an adult. So if we grew up in a family, let's say our parents were alcoholic. It means that we would have a lot of yearning inside and a lot of emotional hunger because they were there physically but they weren't able to be there emotionally. So we yearn and want that presence from them, that attention that's loving and fully conscious and present. And so we grow up and go through life perhaps with addiction issues or codependency issues you know, feeding our emotional hunger with food and shopping and things like that. And then when we go through abandonment and we're in the withdrawal phase, oh, the yearning, you know. Mm. Or let's just, one more example is if you grow up in a family where there was a lot of rejection and a lot of criticism, we tend to then have a lot of, you know, self-doubt within the self. You know, we've been compared to our siblings and we feel inadequate. We tend to have a self-esteem issue. So then, when in adulthood, we can continue to have low sense of entitlement, self-esteem problems, and when we go through an adult's abandonment, those of whom sort of struggled with internalizing when we were kids because our parents or our friends or whatever were critical of us, then we tend to beat ourselves up even more, and very often you find people with a really stubborn major depression during that internalizing phase. Very often we find those are people who grew up with families where there was criticism or rejection or comparison to other siblings.
0: Susan Anderson, you are blowing my mother-loving mind right now. (laughs) It is not very often that people come on here and tell me things I've never heard before. (laughs) I've been around the block in self-help, but I am connecting the dots in my own life all over the place, and I'm sure my listeners are. As well, And this is going to be an episode that they listen to over and over again. So why do the people in our lives who've abandoned us become such powerful figures in our mind? And it's like that old saying that we hear like, oh, you're letting that person take up too much real estate in your mind. And it's like they make it sound so easy to just move them out. Why does that happen?
2: Well, the more someone hurts you, the more pain they create, the more the bond is strong. You know, that's just the way it works. And there's a reason for it. The reason is rather complicated scientifically, but it's absolutely demonstrated through all the research that's been done on so many different mammals and other animals, birds. It's amazing that someone who creates pain either during a relationship by being unavailable and inconsistent or after by breaking up with us or, you know, whatever, who criticized us or whatever the hurt may be, that produces a different opiate in the body of opioid that's produced during pain. And that opioid happens to be highly addictive. So the more they hurt us, the more that we yearn for them because we're now addicted to that representation of that person is associated with that opioid secretion in the body. And we crave that person. That bond is stronger because they hurt us like the woman who's, you know, the stereotypical woman who's being beaten by her husband Mm -hmm. is less likely to leave him than the woman whose husband is a peach and he treats her wonderfully and gives her all, you know, everything she needs. Now she's the one who's thinking, I really am bored in this marriage, I have to get up. But the one who's being abused, or emotionally or physically, really, have a hard time. And it's because of that. The people who cause pain leave a tremendous imprint in the amygdala, the emotional brain, which is the more primitive part of the brain, Mm -hmm. and that creates ongoing ripples because the amygdala is the watchdog and it's always sending out warning signals. So if we bump into someone who hurt us in the past, It's like, oh, we feel such a rush of fear and as if they're the most powerful, special people and we think they're gods or something because they cause such a reaction. But it's Mm. really just the primitive brain that's just doing its thing.
0: I am so fascinated by brain science. I think it's just so interesting how our brain, not only how our brains work, but how how much they haven't evolved, like if at all, from hundreds of thousands of years ago, but we as people have become smarter with our relationships and we think we have all this relationship stuff figured out, but really our brains kind of like laugh.
2: <laughs> like, no, yes. we don't. Yes.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so fascinating. Okay, so for instance, like for someone who has you know, grew up as a child with like a narcissistic parent, or maybe there was neglect, there wasn't like physical abuse or sexual abuse, but maybe there was like neglect or something like that. So those people, and I think, you know, what I hear sometimes from adults, you become 30, 40 or beyond, they think that they're going to grow out of those childhood sufferings. And really, it's true that we take that with us, right? Like we will bring it into our adult relationships, correct?
2: Yes. Now, let's say we had a parent who was borderline or narcissistic, or you know, had a real narcissistic personality disorder. That means that we reversed roles; that we had to take mm-hmm. care of the parent, tolerate them, and be careful not to step on their toes, and you know, we reversed roles. We weren't able to be just children whose needs were automatically met. We had to do too much work. So we might become, as a result of that and many children of alcoholics also, might become super high-functioning in so many areas. Of course, it can lead to dysfunction in other areas, but we can become super incredibly high-functioning. But when it comes to feeling secure and having trust and forming secure, lasting, primary relationships or mutual friendships where we're not doing all the work, you know, where we're not getting a short end of the stick, so to speak, When it comes to those relationships, those issues seem to show up there. It's not that we're not amazingly independent, strong adults, but we may have a particular vulnerability when it comes to really having those really close relationships. Many of us become people pleasers or we become isolated. You know, we sort of run the gamut there.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. So... Well, that kind of brings me to my next question I wanted to ask you, which you may have already covered, and that's why do the feelings of insecurity and rejection linger long after a breakup has happened? Does that go back to the brain science? It really does because those
2: feelings arouse the primal abandonment fear, something that we all have. We can't escape having primal abandonment because we were all born and we all experience the trauma of being in this warm place and then all of a sudden, help the lights, the, you know the colds, table to be put on. And then we also experienced as newborns being picked up and cuddled and warmed again, and then being laid back down on a flat surface. So we experienced as children being connected and then disconnected, having oneness and then all of a sudden being separate again. So we have a natural fear of losing that oneness, that connection. And it's a fear that when we were newborns, our lives depended on making sure someone took care of us. So that fear is in all of us. So the amygdala, which is about self-defense, fighting off threats, we feel it's very primitive, but we feel as if our lives are at stake when we feel rejected. When someone pulls away from us, it feels the anxiety and the fear that comes up seems so irrational and out of proportion to what's going on. And we feel that we're weak and we're ashamed of ourselves for having these huge emotional suction cups that want to aim at the person and suck them in, you know, because we're feeling so insecure. But it's really... The primitive brain that's giving us warning signs. Uh-oh, an abandonment's happening. Yeah, Whoops, you've to, to watch out. Mm-hmm. And so it's an automatic response that comes from a primitive place. Nonetheless, we're the ones, we as these conscious beings, are the ones feeling this anxiety, this vulnerability. So even though it's coming from our primitive brains, we're the ones who have to deal with it. <laughs>
0: Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly because sometimes life sucks.
1: Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
0: Okay, so what are some of the things that we can do to recover from a painful abandonment? I'm sure like probably the first step is knowing that we've been triggered, right? Right.
2: Yes, and not to underestimate the severity of the wound. I mean, if some people, you know, you might lose a relationship and be quite amazed that you're going through it at an even keel. But when that doesn't happen and you find yourself with a rug pulled back from underneath you and you're brought to your knees, the most important thing is don't shame yourself. There are forces within your brain chemistry. It's not you. It's sort of... You know, we're all human and we're all, you know, animals. Mm-hmm. And we have this brain that is making us feel this way. It's involuntary. So you don't want to underestimate the wound. So that's the first thing is self validation and getting rid of the shame about feeling so ashamed. You know, because there's a lot of shame with
0: abandonment. Yes. A
2: lot of shame. Don't double it by saying I'm ashamed of being ashamed. Shouldn't
0: feel this way. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm.
2: yes, you just do. It's just, it's just the way it, it works out. But then the how-to, what to do to get through the abandonment process so that you benefit from it rather than be diminished by it, that's the goal. That is a work-intensive process. It's good work. It's all good. And it's doable work, and it's very worthwhile, and it's something everyone should do. But it's work-intensive. It's not intuitive. You really have to do your way out of the abandonment, not think your way out of it, or feel your way out of it, you have to do your way out of it. So that's why I wrote the workbook, Mm -hmm. because it's so much activity that why not make it easy for people so they can start on page one, you know, and sort of go through the process, make it as easy as possible, because it is doable, but it just, there's a bit to it, so make it easy, make it something they can just flip through pages and kind of work their way through.
0: So, and everybody listening, the link to Susan's book, The Abandonment Recovery Workbook is in the show notes. I love that you said that you can't think your way through it. And I think that like myself included, if if there was a way for me to think and do my way through personal development, like I probably would, but it's like the feeling and the emotional part. I know that's so important in this work and all of this work. And you said something really interesting about recovering from painful abandonment. And that was to not shame yourself. And I can attest to that, that that does not work. So my divorce was 10 years ago. It happened in 2006, in February of 2006. And it was, it was a decade ago. Right. And for years I kept, I would have dreams about my ex-husband and it was just seemingly inconsequential things. And I would wake up and be furious and be furious. him and mostly furious at myself that it kept coming up and it would sort of like take me out for the day and i realized after a couple of years of that 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 was not helping like me beating myself up over it and being angry about you know having i was making it mean something and it really wasn't anything more than just grief and i think for personally like i had put myself like on a timeline for the recovery of my divorce. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Didn't work out that way. You can probably tell. I just really wanted to underline what you said about that because for me, when I... And it took therapy and coaching and really smart friends to point out that, you know, what I experienced was trauma. What I experienced was abandonment, you know, kicked up all my childhood stuff. And what happened was that I had to surrender... To the process and just know that i was grieving and then also and, and i don't know if this is helpful for anyone listening and in regards to my story is that you know I, I grieved the loss of my first marriage and then also what i didn't let myself grieve until much later was the loss of that entire family that i had before because you had a large family i was very very close to my in-laws and his brothers and their wives i mean we were a family And as many people listening know, and as you know, like when you get divorced, it's a side effect of divorce. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't coming to birthday parties and weddings and baby showers anymore. So that was extremely painful. And once I started to grieve, that was when I finally... Was able to start to let go. It really truly is like, and also once I accepted, like this is my brain's way of dealing with this and you know, abandonment and rejection and all of those things and shame and humiliation and all those feelings that I think that we don't give ourselves permission to actually feel.
2: Well, I mean, what happened in your case is fairly typical because the first thing that you dealt with was the abandonment part, the mm-hmm. actual feelings of rejection of being replaced by someone else, and that took precedence. But as you began to sort of work your way through that, the loss of all those people, of the lifestyle, of the dream that you had, exactly. all of you begin to feel that. But, you know, the shame thing is such an important thing part of what we have from abandonment from childhood and all of that, because there's a deep vein of shame that runs through the self. And then as we go through adulthood, those of us especially who have childhood issues, you know, of abandonment, most of us do, any little trigger can nick that shame vein. It's like a little dart that can get into the shame vein and then. It leaks its toxins into the self, and all of a sudden you have a funny move. You don't feel good about yourself. You're not feeling as strong about yourself, and it's because some trigger came along and nicked the shame vein and sent the little poison fluid you know, into the bloodstream kind of thing because it's there in most of us, I would say. Some of us probably have it to a lesser degree, and everyone probably has some, but some, some thing, people yeah. really have it. So the thing that we do if we follow sort of our instincts is to obsess because the brain will not stop obsessing when we're in a funny mood and we don't know why, or we've had a dream and it opens it up, or we see our ex and oh, it you know creates a thing. And right after the breakup, there's a lot of obsession and it's involuntary it's not our fault it's the brain is doing it you know we wear our friends out talking about it you know but the fact is that all that obsession is just the brain doing its thing it's sorting through data that's what it's doing the thing that will help us is the doing so the reason I'm saying this is because you set a timeline and emotionally there is no Mm -hmm. timeline but for doing there is so you could say look I'm grieving But as of six months from now, whatever date you may have picked, I'm getting rid of this. And you couldn't get rid of the grief because it has a mind of its own, right? Mm -hmm. But you could start doing. You could give yourself a moratorium on taking certain actions. But then, No matter how terrible you still feel, you can set a timeline for, okay, now I'm taking action. As of, you know, a year from now or six months from now,
0: I have an action plan.
2: Here it is. I ha- can't do it yet. I feel too horrible, but I will do it.
0: That I agree with. And it took me about a year out from my own breakup because during that year I was busy dating all the wrong guys. And <laughs> yes, yes. Was a, I had a really bad breakup, and that's when I finally was. I drew a line in the sand. After I picked myself up off the ground from crying in the fetal position, I picked myself up off the ground and said. Okay, I need to take responsibility for what I've done. And it, not to self-blame at all, but I think that, like you were saying, and I love that that powerful metaphor you were using or analogy about the shame vein and having a dart thrown in it. And I can't tell you how much it's helped me and my current marriage in knowing what my triggers are and knowing when it's happening so I can own what's my shit and what's not. Because, yeah. you know, especially coming from my past and it doesn't take a lot to trigger my abandonment issues and, you know, in rejection and everything. So when that happens, I mean, I am through the roof and I've shared on this podcast, a couple of stories where I've had to either turn around and apologize to my husband for unnecessarily, you know, being mad at him for something he didn't really do or stop myself before I even do it. It's been huge for me. And I think it has saved many fights and, and yes. really, and contributed to my own sense of pride of, you know, how I'm handling things as an adult.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, you're talking about taking radical, unconditional responsibility. There's a book by that name, I think, but or maybe the words are reversed, but the concept is that you may not have caused the abandonment. Certainly as children, we didn't cause it. We may feel that we did, but we didn't. But you may not have even been the major contributor to, you know, what happened in the breakup. But the more responsibility we can take for our side of the equation, the faster we get into recovery. So when you had, you know, you were in the grieving process for your divorce, and then you went on to have all the, you know, relationships and felt rejected again, the re-wounding, you know, re-wounding hurts more the second time, because imagine walking around with a big surgical your wound and have somebody punch it Mm -hmm. but that woke you up and you realize "Uh uh-oh uh-oh okay i gotta take responsibility here i have to take care of myself in those of us who can somehow find the positive and really mobilize that becomes a wake-up call And some of us aren't so lucky to have that automatic mechanism that you did where you said, okay, this is crazy. I'm picking myself up from fetal and putting my show on the road here. Not everybody has that mechanism, so that's another reason for the workbook because sometimes we need the nudge from friends, therapists, others, books, what have you, to really help us see that we have to take 100% 100% radical, unconditional responsibility for ourselves.
0: Yes. You know, I always say that that was the catalyst for for changing my life. I think for most people, you have to get to a place where you're ready because I think a lot of people just aren't ready. They just still want to suffer a little bit longer. And, you know, it's, it's different for everyone. But one of the questions I also wanted to ask you is, when do you believe it's not okay to follow your gut? Because we talk about that a lot over here about following your gut.
2: Well, when you have, you know, childhood abandonment issues and you have sort of these imprints from earlier experiences, very often your gut will make you feel attracted to someone who may be not active at first, but maybe is a very critical person or a rejecting person or someone who will become emotionally distant. We can feel attracted to all the wrong people. Mm -hmm. So if you call that attraction the gut, then I would say rather than follow your gut, Acquire more wisdom, really see your patterns so you're following what your cognitive resources are telling you. but follow your gut in most other contexts, it's right off. but when it comes to these patterns, following your gut could get you right back into a relationship with you know someone who will prove to push your old abandonment issues, your buttons.
0: I have been there for sure, <laughs> and that's really interesting. that's really interesting. okay, so thank you for that. And what do you think is the difference between, because you talk a lot about being alone versus feeling lonely. So can you speak to that? Well, being alone and choosing to be
2: alone is a celebration. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. Many people choose that lifestyle. Many people who are over 40 or 50 choose that lifestyle. It's blissful. It can be wonderful. You put together a composite of friends and other activities and you create a full life, and there's nothing wrong with it. When you don't choose to be alone, and it's foisted upon you, it can feel like as if you've been condemned to a, you know, solitary confinement. It can be so isolating and condemning, and, of course, it triggers the shame. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it has to do with whether you chose it or whether it was foisted on you by someone else's fault. But while you're alone, even if somebody else chose to leave you and you're left all alone, while you're alone, it's important to be able to cap that opportunity to really develop a new profound relationship with yourself because now you really do have to take care of yourself. Your muscles have atrophy. You you don't know how to do that because you've been with another person emotionally. You, know, you don't know how to take care of yourself emotionally, mm-hmm. Most of us know how to take care of ourselves, but emotionally. So it's an opportunity to really develop a profound new relationship with yourself, one that will carry you toward greater life, goal achievement, and greater connection. You know, as time goes on, your capacity for love increases. The quality of your connections become very high, and your ability to love is is right there with you.
0: Love that. That sounds really amazing. Yeah. And I know a lot of people, you know, being alone is a matter of self care for them. Yes. I like it. I actually yes. really like, especially as a mother yeah. of young children, I really do like being alone sometimes. Oh, yeah. So please tell us about the black swan you refer to in the book and how it became such an important symbol in abandonment recovery.
2: Well, the black swan was at the bottom of the hill where I'd take a walk, and the morning after I was literally left by my beloved love of my life, left me for another woman the night before, the next morning, I walked down to my little harbor at the bottom of my street, and there was a black swan, and I'm on the east coast. There are no black swans on the east coast, Mm -hmm. so it was completely shocking. And I was so depressed and so awful with, you know, the abandonment grief that I could barely care, really, uh, you know. But I made it a point to start studying the swan, and he became sort of he. I made it a he because he was surrounded by all these white swans, and he seemed so isolated. So I made it a point to really study the swan, and he became almost like a higher self, like a spirit guide. You know, like like a guide, and I was able to reach some kind of place of understanding what I had to do to recover from the abandonment. And I had written a story about a little girl on a rock whose father left her up there to die, and I sort of worked the two stories together so that the black swan could teach the little girl 12 lessons of abandonment recovery so that she could use those lessons to actually you know, recover from her abandonment, and I practiced these same lessons every day, and of course, it brought me to a, the most wonderful new place within myself, better than I'd ever been before.
0: That's so interesting. I yeah, I don't know anything about black swans, and I'm on the East Coast, too, and I've certainly never seen one out here. <laughs> oh, No. So it sounds a lot like spirituality is a big part of abandonment recovery. I'm I'm guessing. Yes. Okay. So I have one more question for you, and it's a question that I ask all of my guests, and that is, what surprises you about the work that you do with your clients?
2: Well, when I bring people together who have the abandonment issue in common, and that includes almost any people I bring together because we all have them. The magic that occurs is just something so inspirational. It's always a surprise. And I just came back from running a workshop and just bringing, you know, 25 to 30 people together under one roof sharing for a couple of days in a row Mm -hmm. is just so life changing for them and for me.
0: I feel you on that. And I thank you for sharing that. And I think that at the end of the day, so many people just want to know that they're not the only one.
2: Well, the fact that you and I are exchanging our stories Mm -hmm. is very important to your listeners because we're sharing with each other and open. They're able to get in touch. So this is even creating a group.
0: Absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening. And thank you so much, Susan, for being here. Everyone go, you can also go to Susan's website, abandonment.net, or the show notes from this show, yourkickasslife.com forward slash 128 to grab the links and a link to her book. Susan, thank you so much for being here. I've loved this conversation. Thank
2: you. Thank you for having me. It was my My
0: pleasure. pleasure. You're welcome. And to everyone out there listening, until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.